Dear Lord, we just thank you for this day, just another uh, beautiful day to come into your house and to worship you and to, to fellowship and to study your word. Lord, we just pray that during this Sunday school hour that you'll bless us, bless us with your presence and your word and, and your words of encouragement and your wisdom. Uh, Lord, help us to learn what you'd have us to learn from our study on the conscience and help us to apply it to our lives. Please be with our church, be with our leaders, Gentry and Mitch, and be with all those who are sick or ill or away. Uh, just, just give them a special blessing this morning as well. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, if you remember last week, uh, we started... a study on conscience... And it's a book by Andy Nasali and J.D. Crowley called Conscience, if you want to look at it. I'm just going to do a little bit of a review, because if you're like me, you probably forgot most of what we talked about last week, or perhaps you weren't even here. But the goals of this whole study, looking at this book, um, three main things. Number one is just to put conscience on our daily radar, just to make us think about it. Um, Number two is to show us from Scripture what God intended and did not intend for conscience to do. And number three, to explain how our conscience works, how to care for it, and how not to damage it. And we did a little uh, preface last week, and then we got into chapter one. And chapter one talked about what is conscience. And there were nine, if you remember, there were nine just introductory principles about conscience. Not all these are Christian principles necessarily, but let me just review those quickly about principles, about conscience. Number one, conscience is a human capacity. In other words, if you're a human, you have a conscience. Number two, conscience reflects the moral aspects of God's image. Since God is moral and we're made in God's image, then we're moral. And since we're moral, we're going to have a conscience. Number three, conscience often feels like an independent third-party judge. It's, it's like we're judging ourselves from a, an independent third party. Uh, Number four, conscience is a priceless gift from God. It's for our good, and it's to bring us joy, and so we can share it with others. Number five, conscience is an off-and-on switch. It's not a dimmer. It's right or wrong. It's black or white. There's no gray. There's no middle ground. And number six, your conscience is for you and you only. You and you only. Remember we said M-Y-O-C, mind your own conscience. Number seven is no two people have exactly the same conscience. And that's okay as long as our conscience is in agreement with God's standards. And number four, no one's conscience perfectly matches God's will. No one's. uh, it's, It's a lifelong process trying to achieve that. And number nine, you can damage your conscience. You can be insensitive by repeatedly neglecting and failing to listen to your conscience Or you can be oversensitive by having too many rules and regulations that are really just opinions or or tradition. And then we closed last week with two principles of conscience. This was really the big theme of last week's study. Number one is obey your conscience. The first principle of conscience is obey your conscience. But the second principle is God is the Lord of your conscience. So you're to obey your conscience unless God shows you that your conscience is wrong. He may show you through his word. So we must obey our conscience, but more than anything, we must obey God. We must obey God more than ourselves, 
more than our conscience. God is always right, even when our conscience is telling us otherwise. He is the Lord of our conscience. So obey your conscience, and God is the Lord of your conscience. So that was just a quick review of last week. But today, in chapter 2, we're going to look specifically, the title of chapter 2 is how do we define our conscience from the New Testament? How do we define our conscience from the New Testament? Don't y'all love it when the professor, not that I'm a professor, but when they give you the answer to the test before you take the test or before you even study the the material. So I'm going to give the answer and then we'll go through it. So how do we define conscience from the New Testament? Here's, Here's the big key for today. Conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. Or to put it another way, conscience is your awareness of what, it, what you believe is right or wrong. It may not be right or wrong. It's what you believe. So your conscience is your awareness of what you believe is right and wrong. It's your awareness of what you believe is right or wrong. And I'll try to repeat that several times as we go through today. So specifically today, how do we define conscience from the New Testament? Uh, the writers of the book say that to sort through conscience issues, we must start by defining conscience. Is that, that's what we're going to do today. Conscience is one of those big churchy words uh, that can have major implications on how we live. And that's why it's so important that we're doing this study. Uh, in the New Testament, conscience is translated uh, synodesis. That's a big fancy word. Uh, Gentry didn't know how to pronounce it either, so I didn't feel so bad. But anyway... That's the Greek translation for the word conscience. And there's 30 times in the New Testament that the word conscience is used. And we're going to look at all 30 briefly uh, today. And it's interesting that that Greek New Testament word for conscience has no parallel in the Hebrew Old Testament. But the concept of consciousness is certainly in the Old Testament. There's no specific word that correlates to conscience. But you can look through the Old Testament and see how the concept is certainly in the, New, in the Old Testament as well. So what does the New Testament say about the conscience? Um, again, there's 30, 30 references to the word conscience. It's twice in the book of Acts, 20 times in Paul's letters, 5 times in Hebrews, and 3 times in 1 Peter. And that's the 30 that we get to. And you can also, also learn about the word conscience a lot about the word conscience by looking at the words that are grouped with it. So as we read these scriptures, we'll look at the words that specifically are used in connection with the word conscience. And again, there's 30 of these, and don't try to flip through. It's just going to be too difficult. But if you want to jot these scriptures down and go back and look later, that would probably be the easiest thing to do. So again, we're going to look at the 30 times the word conscience appears in the New Testament. And then we're going to... New Testament... We're going to focus on the words that occur with conscience. So the first one is in Acts 23.1. And I'll just read these scriptures. Acts 23.1 says, And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. So good. It's a good conscience. Paul can honestly say that he matched his actions with his conscience and with the understanding of God's moral standards. So in that instance, conscience can be good. The second example in the New Testament is Acts 24, 16. Acts 24, 16. 
So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. So a clear conscience. Paul always tries hard to make sure his actions correspond to what he believes God's moral standards are. The third example is Romans 2.15. Romans 2.15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. We actually looked at this verse last week. So their conscience bears witness. The example here is that Gentiles, by obeying God's standards, exhibit that they have a consciousness. They might not be Christians. They might not know about God or Christ. But by obeying uh, their morality that they place on themselves and their own moral standard. They're, they're exhibiting that they do have a conscience and a consciousness, consciousness of that conscience. The fourth example is Romans 9.1. Romans 9.1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So the conscience bears witness. Again, Paul's consciousness confirms to the Holy Spirit that he's telling the truth. He said, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. So here, his conscience is bearing witness for him. The fifth example is Romans 13.5. Romans 13.5 says, Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the sake of conscience. This is saying we must submit to authorities. The authorities may punish us if we don't submit to them. And also if we don't submit to them, our conscience will get the best of us. We used this example last week of the, you know, the criminal that gets away with a perfect murder and, and yet 30 years later he turns himself in because he just cannot bear the guilt anymore. And that's what we're talking about here for the sake of our conscience. The sixth example is 1 Corinthians 8, 7. 1 Corinthians 8, 7. It says, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food is really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. So here's talking about our conscience being weak or defiled. Now several of the next examples are talking about eating food, sacrificed idols versus not eating food. And I know that's not really something that applies in our day, uh, but perhaps you could correlate it to drinking alcohol or not. You know, if you're drinking alcohol affects your conscience, then you shouldn't do it. If you're drinking alcohol affects someone else's conscience, you shouldn't do it. But you shouldn't let your conscience be affected by someone else drinking alcohol um, because it's not a sin not a, to become drunk and to uh, have alcohol be a, uh, an idol in our lives. That's that where, where it becomes a problem. So bringing it to a modern-day example, this eating food offered to uh, idols might not register with us, but the alcohol issue might. But... When we look at 1 Corinthians 8, 7, it talks about their conscience being weak or defiled. It's talking about people eating food sacrificed to idols. It, it defiled their moral consciousness because it was weak. Uh, perhaps they were oversensitive. We have looked at last week at how your, your um, conscience can be oversensitive. You're, you're making too many rules and regulations, traditions, and you're making them equal to God's law. The seventh example is 1 Corinthians 8.10. 1 Corinthians 8.10 says, For if anyone sees you 
who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? Again, this gets back to your actions affecting someone else's actions. And if your actions are negatively affecting someone else's actions because perhaps their conscience is weak, then you need to be careful. It might help to understand, it says in the Greek text, conscience can also be thought of as encouragement or strengthening or an emboldened type of action. It says conscience is the subject form of the verbs encouraged, strengthened, emboldened. So when you think of those words, sometimes it helps you understand what we're talking about. For example, if someone sees you um, eating food from an idol, uh, this might affect them if their conscience is weak. And they might be encouraged to eat food offered to an idol too, even though it's against their conscience. Um, So if anyone sees us eating an idol's temple, we have to be careful how that affects them and their own conscience. The eighth example is 1 Corinthians 8.12. 1 Corinthians 8.12 says, Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, when you do that, you sin against Christ. So again, you can wound your own conscience. Uh, you can wound the conscience of others, especially when they're weak. When you encourage your brothers or sisters to d- disregard their own consciousness, you're sinning against them, and in fact, you're sinning against Christ as well. Now, the next example is actually 9 and 10 because they're, the conscience uh, word is used twice in 1 Corinthians 10, 25, and 27. So this is 1 Corinthians 10, 25, and 27. It says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. And in verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So if you go to someone's house back in the day, you don't need to bother asking where the meat came from because it really shouldn't matter. Your moral consciousness should not condemn you for eating such meat. And the next example is actually example 11, 12, and 13 because in 1 Corinthians 10, 28, and 29, the word conscience is used three times. So 1 Corinthians 10, 28, 29 says, But if someone says to you, This has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his conscience. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If someone says this food was offered to an idol, they're implying to you that it's probably against their conscience. And you shouldn't eat it because if you do, you're going to go against their conscience. The example 14 is 2 Corinthians 1.12. 2 Corinthians 1.12. For our boast is in this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. So this is talking about the testimony of your conscience. Their own moral consciousness testifies that they were living with integrity and godly sincerity. So the testimony of your conscience. The 15th example... It's 2 Corinthians 4.2. 2 Corinthians 4.2 says, But we have renounced 
disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So in conscience, we need to commend ourselves in the sight of God. By plainly setting forth the truth, you can appeal to everyone's individual moral consciousness because God sees us as we are. It says, in the sight of God. So we need to commend ourselves before God and before everyone. The 16th example is 2 Corinthians 5.11. 2 Corinthians 5.11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are... But what we are is known to God, and I hope is known to your conscience. So God was approving of Paul and his followers of what they are, what they were doing. And Paul was hoping that the Corinthians would also approve of them as well. Paul wanted the Corinthians to use their conscience to approve of him and his followers and what they were teaching about Jesus. Paul was challenging the believers in Corinth to make a judgment about his faithfulness and their faithfulness. And he was confident that if they used their conscience, that they would agree that Paul's conscience and his standards and his living and his actions and his words were all biblical and scripturally true. Basically, Paul was saying, I want you to test me by your conscience. And I think that's something we all need to ask others, especially others in our church, our accountability partners and so forth, we should have them test us by their conscience. We're constantly judging ourselves, but we should have others as well, and that helps hold us accountable. The 17th example is 1 Timothy 1-5. 1 Timothy 1-5 says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So we should have love from a pure heart a good conscience and sincere faith. So Paul is challenging the troublemakers that were causing Timothy trouble. He was challenging them to to act in love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. The eighteenth example is first Timothy one nineteen. First Timothy one nineteen. Holding faith in a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. So Paul was encouraging Timothy to never let go of his trust in God and to live always according to his morals, which Paul believed Timothy's morals were in line with God's morals. The 19th example is 1 Timothy 3.9. 1 Timothy 3.9. They must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. This is specifically talking about deacons. It says deacons must live uprightly with pure moral conscience, conscience, consciousness, they must not deceive others about their character or the doctrine they believe. The 20th example is 1 Timothy 4.2. It says, Through the insincerity of liars whose conscience, consciences are seared. This we actually looked at last week as well. Talking about their seared consciences. It says, By repeatedly suppressing their consciousness, these hypocritical liars have desensitized their moral consciousness they don't feel any guilt they've repeatedly said no 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 when their conscience talks to them and so they become insensitive 
So like we said last week, he can become insensitive by constantly neglecting your conscience, or he can be oversensitive by adding needless rules and regulations and traditions. So Paul is saying, when you do this, you sear or damage, defile your conscience. The 21st example is 2 Timothy 1.3. 2 Timothy 1.3. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers day and night. So again, Paul is saying, by serving God, by serving you, by praying for you, I have a clear conscience, because my conscience is in line with God's conscience. The 22nd example is Titus 1.15. Titus 1.15 says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Paul's saying because of their sins, their minds don't think rightly, and their consciousness doesn't function correctly. It becomes defiled. The 23rd verse that we're looking at is Hebrews 9.9. The last part of Hebrews 9.9 says, According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So Paul here, or the Hebrews writer, shouldn't say Paul, the Hebrews writer here under the Old Covenant is talking about how the Israelites offered gifts and sacrifices to God but it didn't completely clear their conscience. They still felt the consequences. Their sacrifices were not perfecting their conscience. Nor will our consciences be perfected either until you know, we reach heaven and are glorified. But we can reach to strive to attain that goal as we try to match our consciences with God's. The 24th example is Hebrews 9.14. Hebrews 9.14 How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So just as the old sacrifices cannot perfect our conscience, here we see how Christ and the Holy Spirit can purify our conscience. It says the blood of Christ clears all the condemnation we feel from our conscience. It cleanses us and enables us to serve God. Jesus does perfect or purify our conscience. And thank God for that. The 25th verse, we're getting close here. The 25th verse was Hebrews 10.2. Hebrews 10.2 says, Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of their sins. What we're talking about here, the writer of Hebrews um, says if, if they had been perfected, if they had reached you know, perfection, um, why would they even have a consciousness of their sins anymore? And certainly this is not true. But the, lesson, the book writers make a point that here, consciousness probably doesn't mean moral consciousness as much as it means an awareness. Have they no longer any awareness of their sins or sense of their sins? not a moral consciousness of their sins. The 26th example, Hebrews 10.22, Hebrews 10.22, said, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 
So here we're talking about an evil conscience. It says we should draw close to God with a sincere heart and complete confidence because Jesus has cleansed us from this guilty, evil conscience that we're talking about. The 27th verse we're looking at in the New Testament, Hebrews 13, 18. Hebrews 13, 18 says, Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. So the writer of Hebrews is saying that they are living and acting according to the high standards of their moral consciousness, trying to live in ways that honor God, and therefore having a clear conscience. The 28th example is 1 Peter 2.19. For this is a gracious thing when we are mindful of God and we endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. So this mindfulness, this awareness, this sense of our conscience uh, allows us to see things through the grace of God even when we're enduring sorrows and suffering, even when the suffering is unjust. In the 29th example, 1 Peter 3.16, 1 Peter 3.16 says, Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. In other words, we should live in such a way that our consciousness allows us to approve of our own actions. Remember, conscious, we're, we're looking back on ourselves and when we do this, we can live in good conscience. And believe it or not, the 30th and last example from the New Testament where the word conscience is specifically stated is 1 Peter 3.21. It says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of of Jesus Christ. If you remember, God saved Noah and his family through water, and this was a type of baptism. And we know that baptism doesn't save us, but it represents that God has cleansed us and cleansed our guilty conscience by forgiving our sins, therefore allowing us to have a good conscience. Now, I know that was very difficult for y'all because I'd read this several times and just spouting off a bunch of verses is difficult, but that's the that's the chapter we're looking at. So if you can go back and read those later, it'll probably make a lot more sense to you. But we're going to kind of bring all this together. Remember, we're looking at the word conscience 30 times in the New Testament. We're also looking at the words that were used in association with the word conscience. Um, and this is going to tell us to look at what the conscience can be and what the conscience can do. So let's look first at what the conscience can be. The words that we just looked at um, spoke of conscience positively in two ways. So remember, we, we had some adjectives there and some synonyms of conscience. And the positive ones, the first one said that conscience can be good. Several times we read in those verses that conscience can be good. Along the same lines as good were the words blameless, clear, clean, and pure. So the first thing that we can look at from the New Testament about what the conscience can be, it can be good, blameless, clear, clean, and pure. Those are the words that we looked at. The second thing we looked at from a good standpoint, a positive standpoint, is the conscience can be cleansed. It can be cleansed 
cleared, perfected, purified, washed, purged, and sprinkled clean. And I'm telling you, even as I read those words now, you can just feel the, uh, the effect of the Holy Spirit, uh, the effect that the Holy Spirit has on our conscience, uh, that it's cleared, it's perfected, it's purified, washed, purged, and sprinkled clean. And, 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 and you know, that, that kind of reminds you why we're doing this study, when we can focus on things like that. Now, unfortunately, uh, the conscience can also be negative. And there were six negative things. It always seems to be more negative than positive, doesn't it? But two positive things, the conscience can be good and the conscience can be cleansed. The six negative things that we looked at in these verses from the New Testament, number one, the conscience can be weak. And I think we can all feel that on a daily basis. Number two, the conscience can be wounded. Not only can you wound your own conscience, but you can wound the conscience of those around you. Number three, the conscience can be defiled, especially with all the evil things in our world today. Number four, the conscience can be encouraged to sin. That's kind of along that same lines. Number five, the conscience can be evil or guilty. So defiled, encouraged to sin, evil or guilty. And number six, perhaps the most damning, is the conscience can be seared as with a hot iron. Now, I didn't really notice this when I first read it, but the authors of the book pointed this out. These negative descriptions are in a declining order, or a morally declining order. It starts off being weak, maybe just mistaken, but then it's wounded, then it's defiled, then it's encouraged to sin, then it's evil, guilty, then it's seared. Um, And searing um, depicts almost a a dead or not even a conscience at all. Uh, John MacArthur kind of explains it this way. Uh, John MacArthur says, A weak conscience is not the same as a seared conscience. A seared conscience is inactive, silent, rarely accusing, insensitive to sin. But a weakened conscience usually is hypersensitive and overactive about issues that are not really sins at all. Ironically, a weak conscience is more likely to accuse than a strong conscience. Scripture calls this a weak conscience because it's too easily wounded. People with weak consciences tend to fret about things that should provoke no guilt in a mature Christian who knows God's truth. So remember, what can a conscience be? It can be positive. It can be good. It can be cleansed. But it can also be weak and wounded and defiled, encouraged to sin, evil, guilty, and even seared or or deadened. So that's what a conscience can be. What can a conscience do? There are three things, according to the New Testament, that the conscience can do. Number one, the conscience can bear witness or confirm. The conscience can bear witness or confirm. Number two, the conscience can judge or try to determine another person's freedom. And number three, the conscience can lead us to act in a certain way. So the conscience can bear witness or confirm. The conscience can judge or try to determine another person's freedom. And number three, the conscience can lead us to act us in another way. And how can it lead us to act? The four examples we see in the New Testament. It can lead us to accuse or defend ourselves. 
We can accuse ourselves or we can try to defend ourselves. But remember, we're constantly judging ourselves. Um, it can also be based on how our conscience bears witness. It can also lead us to submit to authorities. And it can lead us to um, determine if we're going to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, or drink alcohol, whatever um, example you want to use to see how it affects others and their conscience. So coming to a conclusion, how should we define the conscience? And we've already given you the answer. But how should we define the conscience after looking through these examples in the New Testament? The conscience is your consciousness or awareness or your sense of what you believe is right and wrong. So if you go away with anything today, the conscience is your awareness of what you believe is right and wrong. It's your awareness of what you believe is right and wrong. And just look at, at uh, these three statements about conscience as we discuss that definition. A conscience produces different results for people based on different moral standards. The conscience produces different results based on different moral standards. Remember, the conscience is your consciousness or your awareness of what you believe is right and wrong. It's not what actually is right and wrong. It's what you believe is right and wrong. Someone may have a clear conscience because even though what they believe is wrong, they still believe it, right? And the example of that that the authors gave are pro-abortion advocates. Um, their conscience is clear because they believe that abortion is right, even though it is wrong. So that's the example of how conscience can produce different results for different people based on different moral standards. So the, the important thing here is to have the right conscience. You have to base it on the right moral standards. And obviously, that's God's standards. Um, Martin Luther said, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. So if you want to base your conscience on something, you should base it on the standard of the Word of God. And then you'll know that you're on the right track. So your conscience produces different results based on different moral standards. Number two, conscience can change. Your conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong at any given moment, at any point in time, and it can change. It can change for good, it can change for bad. Let's go back to the pro-abortionists. Um, if they change, if they become saved, if they realize abortion is a sin, then their view of that is gonna change, and their conscience will change on that. Number three, conscience functions as a guide, monitor, witness, and a judge. Our conscience guides us as it conforms us to God's moral standards, it monitors how we follow those standards, and it testifies how we conform to those standards, and it judges you on how you conform to them, making you feel guilt and pain, as the case may be. There's a little chart in the, in the book that's really good, and it talks about the functions of conscience. The first function is to guide. As it guides us, it tells us to look forward, it warns us before we do wrong, and it urges us to do right. The second function of the conscience is to monitor, to witness, and to judge. That looks back on your life. It accuses and condemns you when you do wrong, 
and it commends you and defends you when you do right. So again, the conscience is your awareness of what you believe is right and wrong. And it's basically you judging yourself and your awareness of that judging. So what does all this mean? Now that we've defined conscience as an awareness of what you believe is right and wrong, now that we've defined that, so what? What does it matter? Well, we're going to look at that in the next four weeks. Uh, And we're going to answer these four questions about conscience. And these are the next four uh, Sundays that we'll look at. Next Sunday, we're going to look at the question, what should you do when your conscience condemns you? What should you do when your conscience condemns you? And then the following week, we'll look at how should you calibrate your conscience to match God's will? How should you calibrate your conscience to match God's will? And the next week, how should you relate to fellow Christians when your consciences disagree? How should you relate to fellow Christians when your consciences disagree? And the last study we'll have in this book how should you relate to people in other cultures when your consciences degree, disagree? So that's what we'll be looking at in the next four weeks. But again, today's main point is your conscience, is your awareness of what you believe is right and wrong. And you really need to make sure your conscience is in agreement with God's moral standards and laws.